0: Hi, friends. My name is Clint. I'm the pastor here at Midtown. If I haven't met you, I'm glad you're joining us this Ash Wednesday. Glad you're here with us. Christians are weird. Yeah. And I say that as one of them. I say that as affectionately as possible. But let's face it, we're weird people. We invest tons of time in studying and being formed by ancient texts a library of ancient texts we take a chunk of our weekend every week and we set it aside when everyone else has free time we set it aside to get together to sing songs together often off-key I'll just acknowledge that for myself at least and we also drink juice and eat bread in those times it's kind of weird compared to our neighbors we like to make up words this is one of Christians favorite things to do we make up fancy theological terms like soteriology or pneumatology or ecclesiology or eschatology Some of you in this room are like, I'm a Christian, I don't know what any of those means. That's okay, it's okay, you don't need to know, you can follow Jesus without knowing those words. The point is, Christians are weird. But, our weirdness actually looks a lot like other religions in a variety of ways. Many other religions study an ancient library of texts. Many others have sacred times defined throughout the week. Many others make up fancy religious words. But what makes Christianity particularly unique in its weirdness Is a single provocative image that's right at the heart of Christian spirituality. It's the image of the cross. And for many of us, the cross isn't very provocative anymore. We've gotten really familiar with it in our culture and we've actually sentimentalized it. We've turned it into an architectural feature or the center of a logo, maybe, for a church. We've turned it into an ink design on our body or a piece of jewelry. And those things aren't bad, necessarily. They just reveal how casually and sentimentally we throw around this image today. And that way of approaching the cross would have been completely foreign to anyone in the first century when crosses were actually used. No one back then would have dared turn the cross into a decoration. First, because it was excessively violent by design. Crucifixion, by some historians, is considered to be the most agonizing and painful way to die. But second, and maybe more importantly, in the honor-shame culture of the first century, being crucified was one of the most shameful things someone could undergo. You were naked, exposed in front of anyone, and it was only reserved for the worst of people, the criminals, the slaves, the traitors, the enemies, the lowest in society were crucified. If you were a Roman citizen, you actually weren't allowed to be crucified. That's how degrading it was. And so people back in the day wouldn't talk about the cross, let alone wear it like we do. And even the gospel writers in our gospel accounts have trouble talking about the crucifixion. They spend tons of time talking about Jesus' final hours, but when they get to the actual means of death, all of them really condense their description. They just say, and then he was crucified, or something like that in each gospel account. It's as if the details are too gruesome to describe, or that the horror and shame was so well known that you didn't need to describe it. Maybe a helpful comparison for us would be something like sexual assault today. We don't spend a lot of time going into detail because of how painful and dark and heavy it is. The cross in the first century was what we today might call an emotional trigger. It was a shame-filled and egregiously violent image. It symbolized death, and particularly for the Christian, death to self. And that's a great way to start our time together, huh? Welcome to church, you guys. Let's talk about ancient torture devices and self-denial. but in all honesty, I think it's important for us to understand, because if the cross is at the center of Christianity, and it represents death to self, then that means right at the heart of the Christian faith is something that is radically countercultural to the world that exists around us. See, every one of us in this room has been spoon-fed a message that's exactly the opposite of self-denial. We live in a follow-your-heart culture. Death self is entirely foreign in the world around us. For as long as we've been alive, we've been given inspirational mantras like, be true to yourself. Or, Speak your truth. Our brains have been rewired by social media and technology to expect instant gratification. To the point where we can buy a super niche item on Amazon and have it on our doorstep that day. And our default assumption, largely from thinkers like Freud in the last hundred years or so, is that squelching desire is inherently bad for us. That when we squelch desire, that's either the result of oppression from outside or repression from inside. And either way, we should ignore those things and pursue our desires full stop. There's a sociologist named Robert Bella who discusses this in his book, Habits of the Heart. He writes this. We've been led to believe that the self is sacred. Just as in an earlier time it was thought never fitting to deny God, now it seems never right to deny oneself. We become our own gods. And even our Christianity can get corrupted by this. Think about how often we seek a church because of our particular consumeristic preference. Think about how often we plug into a community because it comfortably espouses our particular political position. We orient our prayer lives and religious practices around comfort and convenience. And our theology can often mirror this. Many of us are familiar with the idea that the cross is when Jesus dies for us, which is true, But not many of us are as familiar with the idea that we die with Jesus on the cross. We don't talk about that as much, because it's about what Jesus did for us. It's about me. Now, thankfully, none of us is trapped in our current cultural moment. We have rich traditions and practices that can pull us again and again back to this Jesus-following life, even in a culture that seems to resist it. And that's what we're up to tonight. This Ash Wednesday thing, it's something that Christians have been doing for thousands of years. It's a way to reflect on this important subject of death, on our own mortality, and particularly death to self. And it sets off a 40-day season where we are orienting ourselves back to the cross and to the resurrection. And so during this season, we at Midtown are starting a new teaching series and a set of practices that we're all going to take on together. The series is called You've Heard It Said, But Jesus Says to You. You've heard it said, but Jesus says to you. And for the next seven weeks, we're going to be examining some common misconceptions we hear about who we are and who God is and what this world is all about. And we're going to listen to the words of Jesus and how he points us to a transformative picture of life on the other side of that. And we're going to do this together in a few main ways. First, in our teachings together, starting tonight and then on Sunday mornings. We'll gather together and hear the words of Jesus. But second, tonight and on Good Friday, we're going to have some space for meditation and reflection. That's what these stations are scattered around. We're going to have that after our teaching Tonight. So you guys will get some chances to reflect on this in your own life. And then third, there's a weekly devotional that we've created. You hopefully picked one up on your way, and if you need one, you can grab them at stations on your way out. Uh, but this weekly devotional is designed for your own personal prayer time, so that you can reflect on ways you might need to move away from what the world has said and you know, reside in what Jesus says instead. And so tonight, we're going to start by examining the words that you've heard in our culture, follow your heart. And we're going to look at how Jesus dispels that notion. and actually points us to a radically different picture of life, of transformation. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to open it with me. Maybe it's on your phone. That's okay. We're going to be in uh, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16. Matthew is the first book in your New Testament, if you're flipping there. Matthew, chapter 16, starting in verse 21. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. The word's going to be behind me on the screen, so you can follow along there. Matthew, chapter 16, starting in verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this must never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Then Jesus told his disciples, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves, and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit them if they gain the whole world but forfeit their life? Or what will they give in return for their life? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We arrive at this passage here in verse 21, fresh off of Peter's remarkable confession of belief. He claimed that Jesus wasn't simply a rabbi, like many people thought at that time, he wasn't simply a prophet, like many other people thought at that time. Peter said he was the Messiah. The son of God, the one sent from God. And Jesus commended him for that conclusion. He said, yep, you nailed it. In other words, Peter has just gotten his doctrinal statement nicely nailed down. His theology is looking great right now. It's been neatly packaged and affirmed by Jesus. And within six verses, we find out that Peter is way off in his understanding of Jesus. So far off that Jesus says something that would be pretty offensive to someone in Peter's position. And so we learned that a perfect doctrinal statement doesn't necessarily mean we've got this life of discipleship figured out. There's still a lot more formation that needs to happen in us. See, if you were a first-century Torah-observing Jew, like Peter, the affirmation of the messianic king in Jesus and his arrival would lead to particular assumptions about what's coming next. See, if Jesus is king, then that means that it's time to clear the way of any other king's. And so Peter's probably running through his mind, well, we've got to get Caesar and the Romans out of the way. We've got to get the abusive Herod the Great out of the way. We've got to get those abusive religious leaders and the Sanhedrin out of the way. He's thinking about a strategy. And the way you would do that is pretty straightforward. You would march into Jerusalem, rallying an army around you, and you choose the exact right moment to surprise your enemies. You'd strike the authorities, and then you take over the temple and crown Jesus king. That's how this works. It's revolution. That was what was expected. If you read Jewish history from just a bit before Jesus and just a bit after Jesus, there were attempts to do just this. This is par for the course at that time. And so it's quite likely that Peter has a militaristic picture in his head of who Jesus is and what Jesus is going to do. You can imagine him thinking of Jesus riding towards a shimmering golden throne on a trusty white steed with a flag of Judah waving in the background. Maybe Jesus has an AR-15 strapped around. I don't know what Peter's thinking of, right? But he's thinking militaristically. But what Jesus has in mind is literally the exact opposite of what Peter and the disciples have in mind. We see that in verse 21. He says, yes, I'm going to Jerusalem, but I'm not going there to kill and conquer. I'm going there to be killed and to get conquered. Not to take life, but to give my life in sacrificial love even for my enemies. And that's a framework that makes no sense to the disciples. The idea of a crucified Messiah king, that's an oxymoron, You can't win by losing. They expected a Messiah who would come to be on their side, justifying them and crushing their enemies, and God's Messiah came to love and forgive. They wanted a Messiah that would give them political rule and power, but God's Messiah came to usher in a kingdom that transcends political ideologies. They wanted a Messiah who would assert their own power and rule and judgment, and God's Messiah came to be a servant, one who died for his enemies. And so that's why Peter reacts so strongly. It says that he rebukes Jesus, rebukes his rabbi. It's a strong, strong word. You can imagine him taking Jesus aside and kind of thinking of it like a a PR move, right? He's like, hey, Jesus, listen, man, that was a great speech you gave a second ago, but hey, let's think about this real quick. We all know how kings win. It's great for you to think about your enemies in that way, but you know that power and conquering is how we get this job done. You know that God will never let suffering come to you now, why might Peter be so resistant to Jesus' statement about his suffering? Well, because he knows that if his rabbi, his leader, is going to get killed, then they're coming for him, too. It's going to cost him everything. And that wasn't exactly the picture he had in mind. See, he thought Jesus might be enthroned and that he might get a nice position in his cabinet. He'd be secretary of state or some like lowly position, but something powerful. He thought that he would have a, maybe a comfortable, cushy life in the kingdom. And Jesus flips all of that on its head. It makes sense that Peter's off-put by this statement. And look at what Jesus says in response to Peter in verse 23. He says, get behind me, Satan. So there's that, right? Those words are at the top of the, things, top of the list of things that I would never want Jesus to say to me. Right? And what Jesus is doing here is fascinating, and it's a word for every single one of us. See, when he refers to Peter in this way, it's important to remember that the Satan is a title in Hebrew. It's not actually a personal name. It literally means adversary or opponent. One scholar defines this title of Satan as a catch-all term to describe any influence which seeks to make us turn back from the way of God. And so Jesus isn't referring to Peter as the actual devil. We do believe that there is an actual enemy, an actual devil, but that's not what Jesus is doing here. He's just using a catch-all term to describe him as, as an adversary. He's saying that at this moment, by resisting sacrificial love and care for his neighbor and enemy, Peter is playing the role of the adversary to the way of God. He's standing in the way of what God is up to. That's why Jesus says he's a stumbling block. He'll trip people up in God's redemptive and restorative plan. It's reiterated in Jesus' next statement. He says that Peter's mind is not set on divine things, but on human things. He is being dictated by human values and beliefs Behaviors, not God's. And then Jesus also says in this statement, Peter, get behind me. That's discipleship language. He's reminding Peter that the proper place for followers is behind, not in front. He's telling Peter that right now you are standing in front of me and getting in the way of God's good redemptive and restorative plan. And that's something every one of us needs to remember. If we call ourselves followers of Jesus. We're never to put ourselves in front of Jesus. We don't follow our heart and drag Jesus along for the ride when it's convenient or when it matches with our desires. We get behind the heart of Jesus. We follow Jesus into what he is doing, and we allow him to dictate us. And that action, it will always go the way of the cross. It will always go the way of serving your enemies of loving the last and the least and the lost. It will always go the way of forgiving your neighbor, refuting worldly domination and power. It will always go the way of selflessness, not selfishness. And so the example of Peter should prompt a question for each and every one of us here today. Where might I be placing myself in front of Jesus? Where might I be placing my beliefs, my values, my behaviors in front of Jesus. In what ways do I need to get back behind Jesus? In what ways do I need to keep following him? Where do I need to go the way of the cross? And it's at this point, as Jesus is seeing the disoriented heart of Peter, that he extends a three-part invitation to his disciples. And notice that it is an invitation in this passage. He says, if any wants to become my follower, He doesn't say, hey, you guys better shape up, get your act together. He's inviting them. He's saying, if you want this life, it's available for you. Here's what it looks like. And he mentions three different things in the preceding verses. He says that a life with Jesus, true, lasting, eternal life, starting now and going into eternity, consists of three things. Denial of ourselves, taking up our cross, and following him. Self-denial taking up our cross and following him. Just a short word on each. First, denial of self. It's important to help clarify what Jesus is saying and isn't saying here, because this sort of denial of self can become masochistic and harmful if wrongly applied. For instance, I had a friend who was in ministry a few years back, and he looked at this passage and said, You know what? I'm going to completely suspend even my own well-being for the sake of the kingdom. And so he spent more than a year barely sleeping, like less than three hours a night, He ate very little, and he was constantly seeking to serve the Lord in everything he did. And it put him in the hospital. He almost died. Jesus, here, when he says, deny yourselves, he's not saying deny your physical, emotional, mental health. He's not saying deny parts of your wiring and your personality. Introverts, it's okay to be an introvert. Extroverts, it's okay to be an extrovert. He's not even necessarily saying deny every desire that pops into your heart's and minds. What he's saying is that we have to become people who are not defined and ruled by us. Our self cannot become the dominant principle that orients the whole of our life. We must turn away from the notion of self-rulership. We need to become people whose thoughts, whose hearts, whose bodies, and lives are shaped by the way of Jesus. And so, in Christianity, true life is not found in masochism but in giving up the presumption that our own heart always knows best. We're to become people who examine our values, our beliefs, and our behaviors in light of Jesus and allow Jesus to reshape those things. And so self-denial isn't so much just about giving up sweets for Lent. It's the decision to let our Lord Jesus rule in our lives. So what in your own life right now might be something that Jesus is calling you to deny? What are the desires that might need to be submitted to Jesus in your life tonight? That's the first thing we want to ask ourselves. Now the second point that Jesus brings up, take up your cross. Remember the first century mentality about the cross. It's an aggressive image. Many scholars think that Jesus is treating the statement quite literally here. He's telling his disciples that they need to be willing to outwardly own their faith in the midst of the world that might take everything from them, including their lives. And what we find is that this is exactly what happened to many of the disciples. If you're a student of church history, you'll know the legend that Peter was crucified upside down, that Andrew was crucified on beams in the shape of an X, that James was executed by the sword, that John was exiled to a remote island, that Bartholomew was killed by Rome, likely by the sword. They all had to take up the cross in some way or another. And that reality is also soberly true for millions of Christians right now in our world. In fact, two of the fastest growing Christian countries in the world, Iran and China, both countries, it's illegal to be a Christian. Millions of people are risking their lives for the truth that Jesus is Lord and that his way leads to life. They are bearing their cross right now. There's a theologian named Dietrich Bonhoeffer who may have known better than any of us about this. He followed Jesus at the cost of his own life in Nazi Germany. He said this in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. When Jesus calls someone, he bids them come and die. Now, many of us won't have to face physical death in the same way. And there is a blessing in that for us. But there's also a comfort that we need to watch out for. We need to make sure that we don't get complicit. And we need to make sure that we identify maybe some other deaths that we might have to die in our culture as Christians. It may not be a literal cross, but it may mean turning down a promotion or leaving a job because the work is antithetical to Jesus. It might mean ending a relationship because it doesn't fit with the way of Jesus. It might mean taking longer to get to your vocational goals because you're unwilling to lie, cheat, or steal. So what might it be for you? What's the cross that you might need to bear right now in your life for the sake of true life with Jesus? That's the second thing. And the third thing, Jesus says, is to follow him. And there's two parts to this following first notice that this isn't just an ethical mandate he doesn't just say follow my teaching he says follow me now the teaching is included in following him but the presumption here is that we walk alongside a living messiah a messiah whose presence is in and around us all the time that means we're not just talking about behavior modification we're talking about spending time with jesus listening to jesus abiding with jesus We spoke about this a few weeks back if you want to listen to our sermon on disciplines. We want to practice this regularly as a community. Embrace being with Jesus and learning to listen to him and allow him to shape our behavior. But the second thing about following, the verb that he uses here is an ongoing and continuous verb. It implies that this action is something that we'll do again and again and again and again. We have to always remind ourselves that we are following Jesus. We are to live behind him. It's really easy for us to accidentally get out in front of Jesus in our lives and start to take him our own way. We always need to check our values, our beliefs, our behaviors in light of what Jesus is calling us to. And we've actually built that into our Lenten practice. So that little devotional you have, it's got a weekly devotion that helps us evaluate the ways that we might continue to follow Jesus and check our values, our behaviors, our beliefs. So according to Jesus, true life looks like denying ourselves taking up our crosses, and following him. Sounds super easy, right? (laughs) Super simple for us. No, friends, the reality is there is a cost to following Jesus. And the cost is that we have to give something up, our self-rulership. We have to give that up. That's really hard in a culture that says, follow your heart. But Jesus closes this passage with an astounding claim. He says that in giving our lives away to him, we'll actually find true life. We're not just giving something up, we're receiving something on the other side. The word he uses for life here is suke. It's the same root as the word psychology that we speak today. And in verse 35, it can actually be translated life or self. It's referring to the whole of a person. Both their physical life, but also their kind of metaphysical personhood. The essence of who they are. He's saying that you will find your true self when you die to self-rulership. The notion is that we can be rid of the false self, break the chains of the false self, and live into who we were made to be by giving up our grasp on our own decision-making and allowing Jesus to shape us instead. So yes, life with Jesus will cost us something, but whatever choice we make is going to cost us something. Following your heart has a cost. and As it turns out, the cost is much greater than the cost of following Jesus. Dallas Willard speaks about this in his book, The Spirit of the Disciplines. He writes this. The cost of non-discipleship is far greater. Non-discipleship costs abiding peace, a life penetrated throughout by love, faith that sees everything in the light of God's overriding governance for good, hopefulness that stands in the most discouraging of circumstances, power to do what is right and withstand the forces of evil. In short, it costs exactly that abundance of life Jesus said he came to bring. And so the cross-shaped yoke of Christ is, after all, an instrument of liberation and power to those who live in it with him and learn the meekness and loneliness of heart that brings rest to the soul. The correct perspective is to see following Christ not only as the necessity it is, but as the fulfillment of the highest human possibilities and as life on the highest plane. That sounds nice. That sounds like what my soul longs for. So friends, Jesus, he's not anti-our life. He's not anti-ourself. He's anti-our preoccupation with our life and our preoccupation with ourself. And so this is a teaching of restoration, of bringing us back to who we truly are, of breaking the chains of the false self and living into the freedom of the true self. And so if you're longing for life that lasts, a life of peace and wholeness and love. Jesus is saying that this is what it looks like it's not following your heart, it's denying yourself, it's taking up your cross, it's following Him. Let's pray.